Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. October 7 is a day Israelis will never forget. Hamas, a group most Western governments define as a terrorist group, invaded Israel from Gaza and committed a spate of horrific acts. They slaughtered more than 1,400 people. They kidnapped more than 200 others, including women, children, and the elderly. Since then, Israel has retaliated. It's bombarded Gaza, and on Saturday it began what its military called a second phase, sending in ground troops and tanks into the densely populated strip. Gaza's health ministry, which is run by Hamas, says 8,000 Palestinians have been killed so far, most of them women and children. Israel says Hamas fighters purposely hide among civilians, but regardless, the human suffering there is real. This is a full-blown humanitarian crisis. All of this sounds horrible, and it is. But unprecedented as the last 24 days have been, this is part of a conflict that is decades old. It is wrought with years of personal trauma, frustration, and failed leadership on both sides. I'm taping this on October 31st. As you know, we usually drop episodes on Fridays, but these are crazy times, and our tapings get dated almost instantly, so we've been dropping them as we've done them. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We take some questions from subscribers to our magazine and website, and you can sign up on foreignpolicy.com to participate as well. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. So, as Israel continues its invasion of Gaza, what exactly is its end goal? Israel says it wants to eliminate Hamas, but how? And even if that's possible, what happens next? Is there a plan? My guest today is a man who is the most decorated soldier in Israel's history. Ehud Barak is a former army chief and defense minister. He was also prime minister from 1999 to 2001. Let's dive in. Ehud Barak, welcome back to FP Live. Thank you for having me. Mr. Barak, it's been a while since we've spoken, so I, I do just want to begin by saying this is a situation you've worked hard to avoid, and I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you for participating with our loss. It's really the most severe blow that Israel suffered since its establishment 75 years ago. Indeed. So I want to begin uh, this conversation with the military's ongoing response. Israel has confirmed that this is a new phase of the war, but the Israeli defense forces have made a point of saying that this isn't officially the start of a ground invasion, but tanks are there, boots are on the ground, there is heavy artillery fire, which is why many observers are defining this as a ground invasion. What do you see it as? Look, uh, we have uh, objectives uh, to eliminate military capabilities and governing capabilities of Hamas in Gaza Strip. 
this could not be accomplished from the air by airstrikes alone. So we have to deploy probably many thousands of uh, pairs of boots on the ground. Now this operation in Gaza, the ground invasion as you call it, is carried out, executed under four different constraints. One is the hostages, which added as another uh, equivalent uh, war objective, uh, the release of them, but it's a main constraint, hostages. Second one is the risk that it will spread to Hezbollah in Lebanon, probably to some dormant cells of Al-Qaeda or other organizations in the West Bank, and even uh, Shiite uh, militias in, in Syria or Iraq backed by uh, Iran. A third constraint is the international law, which we are committed to, and the fact that we know from our experience that our universal support will erode very quickly and the legitimacy of the whole operation will be put under question. And the last thing is even if we accomplish this achievement and uh, as we hope and believe we can, uh, and in three months or six months from now, the Gaza Strip is free from any physical uh, infrastructure or, or governing capabilities of Hamas. We do not intend to stay there uh, for the next 10 or 20 years. So to whom can we pass the torch and how we can participate in creating this uh, entity that will take it from us? Mm. Those are four really important points and considerations you've raised, and I'll tackle them separately. And again, you are not currently in the administration. Of course, you are not in government. Uh, you were uh, a long time ago, so you have an understanding of what's going on behind the scenes. But let me ask you uh, about the question of international law then. The situation in Gaza is dire. Many thousands have died, as I said. Many of them are civilians and innocent. Why can't Israel fight Hamas without killing so many Palestinian civilians? Can you explain that? First of all, as I mentioned, we are committed to international law. We are trying our best to uh, minimize the what's called collateral damage, but actually the innocent people who have nothing to do with the On the causal chain, uh, Hamas is responsible for both the slaughtering of 7th of October in Israel and to the risk to human life of Gazans now. Because basically, we are warning them, according to the national law, once and again, along the last uh, three weeks, about 750,000 um, already moved to the south part of the Gaza Strip, where we uh, promised to commit ourselves not to attack them, to let them uh, uh, leave there. And uh, 300,000 still remain. They remain not because they don't want to leave. They want to leave, but they are not allowed to leave. So in a gun, handgun point to the, the, to the temple, the Hamas impose upon them to stay in order to uh, become human shields. I can tell you, it's not a secret anymore, that the main command post of Hamas in the Gaza Strip is underneath the main biggest hospital in Gaza named Shifa. So they are deliberately used. So they're responsible on both sides of this equation. Of course, we do not uh, use the fact that they are responsible to kill as much as, as we can, the opposite. But we cannot give impunity to these uh, Qaeda or, uh, or, or Daesh-like uh, murderers, barbarian uh, murderers, uh, just because they can use their own people in order to protect them. Now, you've said on the record, I think, to the New York Times that while you do support 
the equivalent of a ground invasion, you do admit that Hamas's ideology can't be eradicated. And to me, this seems like a little bit of a contradiction because if Hamas and its ideology can't be eradicated, what is the point of what Israel is trying to do in Gaza right now? Think of any kind of uh, free world uh, democracy. Think of the United States. If someone in, uh, let's say, uh, any city behind the American border in Mexico, close city, uh, coming, a, a, a coming a group of terrorists, slaughtering the equivalent number in terms of American population will be close to 60,000 Americans within uh, 24 or 30 hours and go back to Tijuana. They attack San Diego. Uh, the United States will do whatever it takes. I remember sending uh, forces over half of the globe to deal with uh, Al-Qaeda or, or Daesh. Uh, they will do anything. They will not ask any question about uh, neither proportionality or anything else. We are uh, doing our best. We are uh, behaving very uh, cautiously in this uh, arena. Now, we know that unlike Daesh or ISIS, they, who were pariah even within the Muslim world, they, they slaughtered many more Muslims than Jews, Christians, or Yazidis, or whatever. Here we are dealing with a barbarian uh, 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 massacre that was carried out by people who belong to a political movement. We do not pretend to uh, erase dreams, uh, wishes, or ideology from the minds of people. Uh, Daesh has a certain kind of... Uh, relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, with about third of the parliament in, in uh, Jordan is not far from Hamas. Turkey, I remember Erdogan telling me years ago, we, AKP and uh, Hamas are brother, uh, are sister movement. That's what the hell are you talking about? They're murderers. Say, no, no, we are against terror. We never support terror, but we are sister movements. I asked him what it means. He said, in any conflict between uh, Hamas and the Egyptians, we are for Hamas. In any conflict of Hamas with you, we are with Hamas. We will not support any terror, but we are with them. So we don't have illusion. Uh, the movement will remain. And, uh, and the uh, infrastructure, the people who perpetrate it, each and every one of them is a target. The infrastructure, the rockets, the munition depot, the training sites, the offices, the communication center, everything is a target, will destroy it, will make it impossible to uh, run the Gaza Strip. And there is a question, as I mentioned earlier, to whom to pass it, something that should be taken care of. Mm. So I want to push you on one thing you said, which is that, you know, Israel has to defend itself. And I think you use the phrase, it will do whatever it takes. And you use the example of the United States, which hypothetically would do whatever it takes to keep itself safe. And this isn't just hypothetical. I mean, America, of course, after 9-11, it took dramatic steps around the world, including two wars, to ensure that it was able to keep itself safe. And the war on terror, the so-called war on terror, had dramatic impacts on America's standing in the world. And it is my understanding that in the last three weeks, several uh, American diplomats have spoken to the Israeli government and warned them of some of America's mistakes after 9-11 uh, and because of the war on terror. So given those mistakes, uh, do you think that Israel is considering that history um, and internalizing what it means to 
retaliate in the way you're describing? Yeah, I, I'm sure we are, uh, even before they talked about it, it's, it's not a secret that they made a lot of mistakes in the years after 9-11. We are trying to learn from them, both on the strategic level, also, of course, on the, on the tactical level. But having said that, we still face the need to, to execute it. You know, it's a, this massacre on 7th of October touches the very basic commitment of a government to its citizens. Beyond the right for equal opportunity or for the right to pursue happiness, there is the right of, of a citizen to be protected physically in his bedroom by his government. And we fail to deliver it. Israeli government, uh, not just the government, the intelligence service, the, the uh, military operations, in spite of heroic uh, fighting of individuals and small groups who were there, it's a failure of the intelligence, a failure of the army, and failure of the leadership of the defense forces and up to the prime minister. It's a failure. But having said that, we still have to make sure that it will never happen again. And that cannot be accomplished by successful interviews in the TV or by diving into history books alone. It, it needs action. And the, this is the action we chose to do at this time. We'll try to avoid all the uh, obstacles along the way. And as I mentioned, there are these four, four constraints. Each and every one of them can derail us from reaching the objective. And they are interwined, interdependent. The whole thing is a gestalt on, on many on over all the region, region and over a, a period of time. It won't end when we uh, finish the immediate job of destroying Hamas in Gaza State. Mm. You know, and I want to remind uh, all of our viewers that you are the most decorated soldier in Israel's history. You've run the army. You were also defense minister. And um, I'm wondering if you can share some insights into how uh, Israel is currently thinking about destroying Hamas's capabilities. What does that entail? And is it even possible? Look, because of the complicacy of this uh, of this issue and all these elements hanging on it, the constraint, you cannot really predict algorithmically what, what will happen. It can develop in uh, not infinite, but many ways. And only those who are sitting on real-time data, facts, developments, uh, interconnectedness uh, of, of different constraints can make the judgment what to do next. But the overall contours are that the Hamas has their probably another uh, 10,000 rockets and probably 200 miles of um, tunnels under the Gaza. And they have uh, probably 25,000, probably 30,000 together with uh, Islamic Jihad, which is a kind of Iranian-inspired uh, terrorist organization. So we have to put there enough force. If they have 25,000, you can imagine that we should bring probably 50,000 or more in order to make sure that we will win. We have uh, superior armed forces, better trained, highly motivated after the picture that they so for uh, several weeks ago and uh, determined to destroy it. So it will be destroyed physically, step by step. I hope with minimum amount of innocent civilians held, being held there under the handgun of the uh, Hamas. And it's a technicality, you know, it will cost us. I have no illusion that it will cost us 
toil and sweat and tears and blood, but it will be completed. Hamas cannot represent a, an existential threat to the state of Israel. I can uh, uh, say as well that even if it develops into regional, uh, regional conflict, full scale with Hezbollah that had 10 times more uh, rockets and missiles, or the uh, West Bank and, uh, and uh, Golan Heights, Israel is still stronger. It's not an existential threat, but it will take more time, more losses, more friction with our supporters in the world. And, uh, you know, uh, the United States uh, stand behind us in an uh, impressive and unprecedented uh, weight. Airlift is working for almost day one. Two aircraft carrier groups are deployed to the area. Some Marines, several thousands of Marines are brought here. Americans are putting on the higher alert all their forces in the Middle East. In a way, you know, if you look at it from a bird's uh, eye view, it looks like uh, the United States is backing its alliance, so its uh, allies in the Middle East, Israel, Egypt, Jordan, um, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates in a, in a lower, somewhat different way, probably Qatar. And, uh, and we are deployed against the rogue alliance led by uh, Iran, having uh, strongholds in Hezbollah in Lebanon, in uh, Hamas, in the Gaza Strip, in, the, in, the, in Syria, in, in the West Bank, and elsewhere, and backed in a way by Russia these days. So it's uh, in a way it's something more global, look even higher. Uh, remember the recent announcement in the G20 of this new, new uh, uh, one road, one belt of the, of the uh, American side, uh, from India mm. through, to the Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Israel, to, to Europe to bring more, uh, both goods and gas. So it's part of a, a wider struggle for dominance and for uh, influence that includes even in a, you know, in a way from the Russian point of view, it makes sense to encourage this conflict here in order to distract Americans from focusing just on Ukraine. Sure. It's had many, many problems, but we are fighting individual Hamas now, now, while we are talking in the tunnels so, in Gaza Strip and determined to destroy them physically, to kill as much as we can and destroy the rest. So let me ask you this, and there's no doubt there's a bigger, greater game here at play, and, and we'll come to some of that. But just one more question on Hamas. Um, you know, the details are fuzzy on, on how... Israel can destroy Hamas's capabilities. But let's say that that is even possible. Um, from what you can surmise, is there a plan for what happens the day after? What happens to Gaza? I'm confident that uh, our uh, war cabinet and the Americans and probably some other capitals in the region, uh, region there are contacts about what to do. You know, I can tell you from my experience, uh, some 15 years ago, I was Minister of Defense. And we had even the rounds, kind of every two years or so, there was a round of clash with the Hamas in Gaza Strip, usually ended with certain understandings mediated by Egypt and produced calmness for another twist. So on the way to one of them, I approached uh, Mubarak and proposed the following. Why don't uh, we, next time that we come, we try to crash Hamas, Hamas fully. It was easier 15 years ago than now. And uh, you will demand from day one that we will uh, push, pull out. 
and after let's say six weeks or two months we will uh, agree with one condition that you will uh, bring someone to take it from us. You know it from advance, so you prepare a multinational Arab force with some uh, Moroccans, uh, Omanis, uh, Bahrainis, whatever, uh, soldiers. And of course, Egyptian, you take it from us for limited period, let's say three or six months, you do it, you will bring back the original owner of the place, which is the Palestinian Authority, to remind your viewers, originally under the Oslo Agreement, the, the um, Gaza Strip was given to the Palestinian Authority, which is recognized by the uh, world, by the UN uh, Security Council as the uh, legitimate owner of the place. They were pushed out of power through a violent coup d'etat by the Hamas uh, uh, years later. So uh, he told me, uh, Barak, no, 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 no. You conquered the Gaza Strip in 67 and uh, it's now yours, it's not mine. I will never ever put my hands back into it. I approached even Abu Mazen and to, to cut a long story short, his position was, I cannot afford coming back to power in Gaza, sitting on Israeli bayonets. I didn't like the answer, but I understood the Palestinian logic behind it. So in 15 years ago, it was impossible. But since then, we had another 15 years of peace with Egypt and Jordan. We have the Abraham Accord. Until four weeks ago, there was even this trilateral deal with the US, Saudi Arabia, and Israel in there. Probably that's the reason why they talked right now, to send a signal to the rest of the world that you cannot solve the issue of Israel and the Arab neighborhood without dealing with Hamas. But I close the bracket on this. So yeah. it's probably possible right now, if not multinational force led by Egypt, probably like something like the FMO in Sinai that was led by the Americans, some international force can take it, bring back, backed by Arab League and UN Security Council resolution, bring back the Palestinian Authority to Gaza, help them heavily financially to develop uh, what they need, power, uh, distillated water, and whatever, and then make it a normal place. Mm. You know, much has been said about the failure of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's successive governments to neglect the security of the southern communities, but also all of this while bolstering Hamas, knowing full well that Qatar was funding their efforts and in effect, uh, many critics will argue that Israel, in fact, helped Hamas, partly to weaken the Palestinian Authority. How do you reflect back at those policies over the last uh, decade or so, but specifically uh, under Prime Minister Netanyahu? It became an issue much more clear in the last five years, where even explicitly you could hear uh, Netanyahu says, that uh, basically one of his uh, extreme right minister uh, made it a more concise decision. He said Hamas is an asset, the Palestinian Authority is a liability, rather than the other way around. Netanyahu uh, pushed a policy for the last at least five years, probably even more, where he said basically we need, if we want to block effectively any a possibility of moving toward two-state solution, which he hates for some reasons, we have to strengthen Hamas and to weaken the Palestinian Authority. And he was doing it by kind of yielding to Hamas demands and keeping them alive and kicking under kind of a hopefully low profile, but, but under their judgment and paying them protection money through the Qataris. 
So that was a very bad policy that uh, many of us, including myself, uh, uh, explicitly attacked and described as a grand negligence of our interest because it was clear that even the cities, the villages, those villages were kind of attacked now, were uh, abandoned to the whatever uh, Yichia Sinwar, the head of military branch of Hamas, decided when he wanted fire, there was fire. When he wanted it to become, it was gone. When he wanted to sweaten some balloons with with a kind of a small fire bombs kind of uh, to to lit fires all around they did it and so, there was so no let me ask you this given yeah. what you say let me ask you this i mean so Net netanyahu saw hamas as an asset now of course he wants to eradicate hamas he has presided over what is clearly you know the worst security blunder in israeli history should he step down Look, uh, I'm not sure that that's the right moment in a proper arena to discuss it in detail, but I would say the following. In any normal uh, country, he would have resigned on 8th October in the morning. In the UK, for example, if he would not have done it, his ministers would come to invite him to a lunch in some club, and at the end of the lunch, he would announce that he decided to uh, resign. In, uh, but Israel is not uh, fully normal in this regard. It's, uh, and after two, uh, after too many years of uh, his uh, control, but we know what the people think about, not what I am thinking. Eighty percent in the in polls that were run in the last uh, two weeks, eighty percent of the public see Netanyahu as the main responsible for this whole unprecedented. A blunder in the history of the country. 70% of the people expect him to resign. A little bit less than half of them expect him to resign immediately. A little bit more than half expect him to resign at the end of the war. But in Israel, war is mentally connected with very short time. Six days war was a week. 73, the toughest war we had in 75 years, took 20 days. And the uh, the other uh, uh, the, the last one the longest one was a clash with Hamas some five years ago that took less than two months. So for Israel, you think he should not uh, resign immediately? They think of two months. But Minister Gantz, one of the two opposition leaders that we ended, a former chief of staff, a general, can respect it, that we added to the uh, recently was added to the war cabinet. He said it's going to take many months, probably a year, probably more. And if it uh, kind of spread to the uh, north, for sure it won't end uh, in, in, in months. It will take a year or years. So basically it's a very long haul. And the uh, Tanyao lost the trust uh, of the public. So it's not easy. The mechanic is not simple to get it uh, can translate into political facts, uh, but I think that it will happen in the coming weeks or uh, probably, probably a month or two months at, at most, there will be a huge wave of uh, rage and uh, the test, even now Netanyahu cannot go uh, easily into a hospital to shake hands with wounded pieces or go to meet with the families of, of uh, those who were slaughtered in this event. Uh, and being accepted. Even in military units, there are certain 
preparation before he comes in order to make sure there will be no, no uneasy events. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. So I want to take a, a step back a little bit here. And over the last three weeks, uh, this has now been fairly well documented that the Biden administration in the United States has shifted its tone. You mentioned that President Biden was very supportive of Israel, but in recent days, um, there has been a shift in tone. Uh, America is very concerned about the civilian casualties in Gaza. Um, it is very concerned about Israel's approach to retaliation and to vengeance. And I'm wondering how you are worried about, or Israelis are worried about, a loss of either support from the United States, about a loss of soft power around the world as the civilian toll in Gaza rises, and also from other countries around the world that, especially Muslim-majority countries, um, many of whom have you know, made their view of this situation clear at a vote in the UN uh, on Friday last week. How do you see all of that and how concerned should Israel be about the mood around the world, not just domestically? First of all, about President Biden, I happen to know him for 40 years now. He's a, the, probably the greatest friend of Israel in the last uh, generation, at least, that uh, sat at the uh, White House. And he immediately responded with whatever he can in order to deter the Hezbollah, to send the signal to Iran. He sent everything, I mentioned it, and uh, we, are, we highly appreciate it. Even his speeches were so moving to Israeli people, not you, to, to hear emotional kind of expression of empathy from even from its own uh, leaders, not to mention from others. So he's very good. Uh, but I think that from day one, probably not in public, but behind closed doors. I have no doubt that uh, Biden and uh, Blinken or Jake Sullivan or Belt, they are saying the same. They're telling Israel, we will back you, but we expect you to bear in mind that within a relatively short time, probably a few months, we will have to shape day after that should be based on the Egyptians, on King Abdullah, on the Saudis, on the Emiratis and others, and on, on the wider picture of our interest. We, America, we are leading the free world. We are committed to, to this international law, and we expect you to be committed. That was no need to mention it, but the practice is less kind of clear cut. And he didn't hide it. I think that our uh, government know, knows it from the past. We know that within a week or two, we probably will lose the support of public opinion in many parts of the free world, that within another two or three weeks, we might lose many of the governments in the free world, still the American will be with us, but it will be more and more complicated to them to stay there behind us. And what they're focused uh, on, because of what I've mentioned earlier about the need to arrange something with the neighbors, and the neighbors, they have a Muslim brotherhood or members of parliament, about one third of them in, in Jordan are Hamas related, so to speak. It's not easy. I watched the eruption of demonstration in both Cairo and Amman after the fake news that, that uh, Israel bombed the uh, Al-Ali uh, uh, 
hospital. And uh, immediately they was there. And if we and the American need them to suppress this heavy eruption of sentiments in their own backyards for months to come, they have to know at least in private channels that Israel is ready to consider things that it was not ready to consider in the past. Uh, for example, how to discuss the, how to go on the political process toward two states, because otherwise they cannot justify for their own people why they, the hell they support Israel or, or stand sit idle on the, on the line. So it's very sensitive. It's very complicated to reach it with our government. It's really a problem because the government is the extreme right-wing government. I, I'm confident the only viable vision for the future of Israel is two-state solution. But the government in Israel thinks different. There is a big debate. They want to do whatever they can, as I've mentioned earlier, to block the option of two-state. Netanyahu have an extremist, right-wing, racist, messianic party that basically led by two gentlemen that I always compare to the, the two Proud Boys leaders who were sent now to 20 or 15 years in prison, respectively. And the think of American president who would have nominated one of them to be Secretary of Treasury with certain formal role in the Pentagon as well, and the other one to be Secretary for Homeland Security. You would think that he's a nut, but uh, that's exactly what happened in Israel. It's, it's still a matter of fact that even after the establishment of the new war cabinet, emergency war cabinet, they are still members of this government. And no one will believe, I cannot see either Sisi or, or, or King Abdallah believe that something can come out from this government. So it's a, but on the other hand, the, the United States cannot intervene in the political uh, processes in Israel. It should emerge from within. So it's not easy. We have now to focus on the fighting the, all the leaders of the armed forces and secretary all admitted they're responsible for the biggest failure of their own services, but they are focusing on fighting. Netanyahu, out of all of them, never was, never was able to admit that he is responsible in any way to what happened in the country. Mm -hmm. And as a result of it, the, the loss of trust in Netanyahu is deepened. But it doesn't hit the, the soldiers on the ground. They are fighting and they are united and we are a defiant species. We know how to unite it when we see external threats. On all so let, me, uh, let me bring it back to the fighting then. And several of our subscribers, and I'll, I'll just name check one of them, Sonia Martinez, um, wants to know about Hezbollah um, and next steps. Do you think Hezbollah might get more involved than it currently is? And how likely is a third front in this war to take place? But also, is Israel taking enough measures right now to prevent Hezbollah from getting involved? Look, we immediately, within uh, 48 hours, we ordered mobilization of 350 reservist soldiers beyond the regular standing army in order to have enough force both in the south and in the north and be ready for the case that it's needed to fight both forms. And as I said earlier, it will be longer, more, uh, more painful, uh, more whatever you say. There is no existential threat to Israel. Israel will win even if it spreads. Having said that, we do not have any interest to open a second front. And 
I would not recommend it to Hezbollah as well because the damage that might be inflicted on them. But it's beyond my control, or our control. It might happen <coughs> that uh, Iranians, in spite of the American signals, will uh, pro them to join. Uh, especially if we are stuck there uh, with heavy losses or slowing of the uh, ground invasion. Uh, it's possible that some people on the Hezbollah think that that's the right moment. And even if both sides, both Israel and Hezbollah, are not interested in letting it develop into full clash uh, war, it might cascade. The recent week or so had seen a kind of a deteriorating situation with heavier blows going deeper into the eye, each other one's territory, and it can easily uh, deteriorate in a full-scale war. So when I'm asked, what's the probability? I used to say, oh, it's 90 plus percent that we will have a ground invasion. It's 50 percent that they, it will spread to the Hezbollah. Not because I know something that you don't, uh, why, that make it 50 and not 60 or 40. No, it's just because there are two possibilities. Either it will uh, open, uh, either a second front will open or not. So it's 50-50 by definition. Yeah. Yeah. Taking a step back a little bit, um, the Abraham Accords, um, you know, Israel's peace accord with countries like the UAE and Bahrain, do you think it'll survive uh, this current conflict? I hope it will survive. Uh, the, 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 fastest, uh, the faster we uh, reach our objective and the lower the number of, uh, of uh, civilians uh, being killed, uh, the higher probability that it will uh, survive. It cannot, no one can promise it survive, survive it in any case. In fact, you know, it's, uh, I think several governing theses or, or underlying assumptions in Israel uh, that evaporate together with the trust in the government. Number one, as I mentioned, was this idea that Hamas is an asset and, and the uh, Palestinian Authority is a liability. Another one is the, the idea that the, you can reach a, a peace with the Arab neighborhood in the Middle East and still ignoring the Palestinians and their, uh, their uh, presence and, and the conflict. A third one is kind of, a, I don't know how to call it, arrogant behavior toward the United States. If you take into account the intensity by which Netanyahu allows himself to try to enter into the American political arena, the, the mm -hmm. partisan uh, politics of America is uh, unprecedented and, in my judgment, unacceptable. And his government, I don't want that to bring the quotes, how they talked about Americans. If you are, it's not your damn business. <laughs> we are operating American war machines. We are running for years on three billion per annum uh, uh, even more than three billion now. Uh, of Mr. Brock, I, 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 I have I have to jump in here to ask you one thing. Given uh, your criticisms of Netanyahu, not only in terms of the intelligence failure, but also clearly the failures of politics and the failures of diplomacy. I mean, can he actually accomplish the things you're describing Israel needs to accomplish in the next few weeks? And I grant that what you're saying is that Israeli soldiers, the military, is incredibly motivated in this moment. Oh, yeah. But but that there must be no faith uh, at, in the very top. And, and that must have effects in yeah. how Israel can prosecute uh, the actions it's trying to undertake over the next few weeks. 
war cabinet under Netanyahu with the Minister of uh, Defense, which is a good, good uh, and, and sober general named Gallant, was not enough, especially because of the presence of these uh, Michigan, of the, the uh, Messianic racist in the government, and the fact that they themselves lost trust. So uh, the act of adding the opposition leaders which include two highly respected generals, both of them now politicians, but were generals. In the last decade, they commanded the armed forces. And they, one of them was even Minister of Defense until uh, a, li a little bit more than a year now. And uh, they are highly respected for being sober, cool-headed, uh, kind of uh, dealing with the uh, issues on the table, not with their political manipulation or some personal interest. They, in a way, made most of us, including myself, much more quiet about the responsibility by which decisions will be made there. And beyond that, we have a very capable Supreme Command uh, and intelligence service that failed dramatically in 7th of October, but uh, the, myself, the public basically trusted them to be able to lead it. So if you ask me hypothetically, I would say that the public would trust much more a government led by anyone else, by, by Gallant, by Gantz, by Edelstein, by Lapid. That, that, it not, doesn't matter, but basically everyone could be better, but that's not the reality. And we have to, if we want it to be changed, we have to find enough public and then political support to change it through the processing and practices of, of uh, a living democracy. The Netanyahu's attempt to turn Israel into illiberal democracy, or what I call de facto dictatorship, like Orban in Hungary and uh, or Kaczynski in Poland, failed. So we're still a democracy, and uh, only democratic process can can lead to change of command at the mm. political level. Let me ask you this: um, You know, we've been going back and forth a fair bit on on. Uh, Israel and soft power and U.S. support and America's soft power, you know, and the notion of vengeance and what that does to a country over time and its standing around the world. And several of our subscribers have been writing in to ask uh, what Israel can do to provide humanitarian protections uh, for Gaza's uh, civilian population, Peter Chisholm, uh, among others, uh, on our subscribers. Um, what do you think can be done here and what kind of pressure can uh, Israelis exert on this front? I think that the um, humanitarian corridors will be open if it will be found that the minimal amount of uh, trucks to pass daily uh, is not uh, 85 trucks, but 185 or 285 a way will be found within the coming uh, days or, or, or week or two to to make sure that enough milk for babies, enough uh, equipment for, for the hospitals or whatever other needs, enough water uh, for sure, uh, will enter into the southern part of the Gaza Strip uh, where the population got a uh, recommendation, orders from us to, to move to. And as I mentioned, many of them already moved and are uh, kind of hosted by UNRWA and other NGOs uh, in, a, in a tent camps temporarily, I hope, of course. 
And uh, I don't believe that Israel will become a source of uh, humanitarian crisis. I don't believe that any Israeli commander ever will give an order to drop a bomb on a hospital or a school if it's active and, and they know that there is someone there. So, you know, it's a, there is an interest of uh, Hamas to blow it up and probably there are problems because it's a new situation. I'm confident that all these I call it minor issues, painful, but minor issues will be solved. Uh, they are very serious issues for the world, sir. But Ehud Barak, I thank you for joining us today. Thank you and thank all the viewers or readers of this material. And that was Ehud Barak, the former army chief, defense minister, and prime minister of Israel. We have another episode later this week one angle I'm very interested in is the regional ripple effects of this crisis. What does it mean for Egypt, for Turkey, for Lebanon? What about Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and of course Iran? I have a great panel, FP columnist Steve Cook and Kim Katas in Beirut, both of whom have been covering this issue from a range of angles and for decades. If you want to follow along our discussion live and watch it, head to our website, foreignpolicy.com, use the code FPLIVE to subscribe. That is it for now. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. 
In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.